Hello. Have you this thought of is the Fightback Podcast, hosted by exercise well, scientist Georgia Very. Here, you'll find a series of honest conversations about martial arts and mental health. My guests and I explore the statement that every martial artist has heard. Martial arts saved me. How and why do combat sports save people? Listen to find out. Before you get into today's episode, I have a really important favor to ask you. So you know how we've worked out that martial arts seem to be able to save lives? Well, I want to work out how we can do that on a global scale. So I'm hosting an international conference to uncover what is best practice for trauma-informed martial arts so that we can create an evidence-based therapeutic tool. After this conference, I'm going to be able to take this document to government, lobby for funding, and create training programs to upskill more people as trauma-informed martial arts instructors. This is going to mean that trauma-informed martial arts become accessible around the world to those who need them most. It's really, really important work that I'm doing, and you can help. So please pause this episode jump into the show notes and check out the GoFundMe page that I've linked. If you can donate, that is amazing. If you're unable to donate, please share the page to your social media. Both of those things really, really help the cause and you could save someone's life by gifting them the gift of martial arts. Okay, so I'll see you back here in a minute. Go do that and then we'll get into today's episode. Everybody, welcome to another episode of the Fight Back Podcast. I'm here today with my new friend, Lauren. So Lauren Bailey is a martial artist and the co-founder of Thrive Empowerment Center, which trains and teaches women, children, and everyone in empowerment self-defense. So Lauren, welcome to the show. I'm so happy you're here. Georgia, thank you so much. I'm so excited to be part of your podcast and to help support your work in trauma-informed martial arts, which I feel like is so important and is just going to keep being more important. Totally, totally. What has been your journey with martial arts? Um, let's see. I started martial arts about six years ago um, in Combat Hapkido, mm-hmm. and I had no idea what I was walking into. I actually went to a um, women's self-defense seminar first and loved it so much that on my way out the door, I asked the um, the wife that it was a husband and wife team that taught it, like, can I do this again? And she was like, well, we only do women's self-defense like once a year, but we have we have Hapkido. And I had no idea what it was, didn't know how to spell it, went home and Googled it. Um, but I didn't care. I just wanted to come back. So um, so I did that uh, and and trained that for like five, six years. Um, got my black belt. And then I also picked up um, Filipino Kali, which for those of you who don't know, is um, knife, stick and empty hand fighting and then Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, which is uh, ground grappling. Um, And that that's probably what I'm training. I'm training Jiu Jitsu most often now. Um, And then uh, about a year ago, right before the pandemic, uh, my best friend, Lindsay, who was my combat hapkido training partner, uh, and I founded Thrive because we had a, a huge need in our community for um, regular trauma-informed self-defense. Uh, so that's sort of how martial arts set me on the path that I'm on now. 
So we'll come back to you, your experience with martial arts and why you started in a bit, but I want to get into this concept of empowerment, self-defense and trauma-informed self-defense. So what does that look like? How is it different to sort of your standard self-defense class? Sure, absolutely. Um, it's it's sometimes easiest to get into this conversation by talking about um, like your standard self-defense and how empowerment self-defense is different from that. Um, so when Lindsay and I first started, we got really um, curious and passionate about the self-defense aspects of um, martial arts. Lindsay comes from a domestic violence and, and um, survivor background. Um, and I grew up in kind of a chaotic childhood and, you know, that led to different problems for me. Um, and so like the self-defense aspect and the empowering aspect of martial arts, just like it just lit us up inside. So we would go around to as many self-defense seminars as we could find, like within a five hour drive of us, um, just to see what else was out there, to see what, to test what we knew and to see if, if, if there was more, like we just always wanted to know more. Um, and we would come away very disappointed uh, because, you know, all these seminars that we went to, they were exclusively taught by men who often were very, very well-meaning, but just didn't understand what it's like to walk around in a woman's body um, and face the kinds of like just everyday microaggressions and, um, and harassments that women face. Uh, and they um, completely ignored the fact that um, like 80 to 90 percent of sexual assaults come from somebody, you know, like all the scenarios that they were um, training women towards were like your um, stereotypical you know, ho hooded stranger jumps out of a white van and like drags you off into the bushes, which not to say that that never happens. It does. But, you know, usually it's, you know, it's date rape or, you know, it's your brother's best friend, you know, like, or it's a family member or whatever. And there was just no, no talk of that. Um, and then there was also no acknowledgement whatsoever that, I mean, anytime you have a gathering of women, you've got survivors in the room. And, you know, like there was never any acknowledgement or talk of that. And um, like sometimes we would go to these seminars and like they would we'd be so excited because there'd be these teenage girls or like college age women. And, you know, and then the instructor would spend you know, an hour talking about how to cut through a zip tie with your shoelace. And like, you know, like if you come back, I'll show you how to get out of my trunk. But like simple stuff, like situational awareness and listening to your intuition and like not accepting an open cup from somebody at a party. Like they, there was no, like they didn't, just the basic things that you can do that are very empowering to keep yourself safer, they, they, they ignored. And instead the advice was like, you know, well, don't go here after dark. Don't wear this. You should live on the third floor. You should have a dog. Don't ever run with headphones in. And it was just like, like, yeah, you can be safe in the world. Ladies just live small, 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 small. Um, and like <laughs> we were furious. And in some of these seminars that we'd go to um, or that our friends would tell us that they went to, women would be walking out out of frustration, um, you know, because they would be showing them like how to jab a pressure point in, in, in your neck or something. And like a friend of ours told us that when she was in, it was taught by some Kung Fu guys and they were like doing some pressure point stuff. And there was a, you know, petite woman there. And she said, I'm not sure this would work for me on a guy who was a lot bigger than me. 
And the instructor looked at her and said, yeah, this probably wouldn't work for you. And, you know, like how, you know, like she just spent hours in this class and then you basically were like, yeah, you can't really defend yourself. And so it like we were just frustrated. So we joined um, the National Women's Martial Arts Federation and there we found empowerment self-defense, which is this um, specific and unique curriculum that has been around for like 50 years. And it was initially designed by like feminist activists um, and psychologists and social workers who were like on the front lines of like the, the anti-Vietnam War movement in the United States. And they were going into like Central and South America and like protesting some of the human rights um, atrocities that were down there. And so these women um, you know, realized that they were putting themselves in these really dangerous situations and they, you know, kind of like the British suffragettes, um, you know, like they wanted to be able to protect themselves. And so they sort of pulled from their training as psychologists and social workers. Um, and, you know, a lot of them had to join the like men's karate clubs on their college campuses. And they pulled from that and they started like training together, um, you know, kind of like like a little bit in secret and, you know, like a little bit privately and just, and, and, you know, because they were feminists who were like keenly aware of, you know, sexual assault and, you know, um, like these were the women that were starting a lot of the first domestic violence shelters in their cities. And so, like I said, they kind of pulled from all these different areas of knowledge that they had um, to apply those trauma informed principles to self-defense teaching. So when we teach empowerment, self-defense, um, there are a couple tenants right off the bat, like there's confidentiality. So you can take any skill that you learn in class. Absolutely. Go spread that as far and as wide as you want. But any personal stories that somebody shares in class, those need to remain confidential because especially when we're together for a while, like the stories come out and, and we want to create a safe space for that. We want to hold space for that. So that's one thing. Um, the next uh, the next aspect is it is entirely consent based. We say you can step up or step back. So like sometimes self-defense training can be a little bit uncomfortable because it's new. And so that step up aspect, we encourage you to push yourself outside your comfort zone and challenge yourself a little bit. But if at any point in time you feel triggered or activated or you're like, I can't, I'm not ready for this right now, you 100% have every right to be like, you know what, I'm just going to, I'm going to sit this one out. I'm going to watch. Um, you know, you can learn just as much from watching the other members of the class go through an activity, um, you know, as doing it yourself. So, you know, just making sure that they understand that they that we respect consent and they have complete agency in class, which is huge for trauma survivors. They have to have that agency. Um, and then even in the physical techniques, we offer a touch or no touch option. So like if I'm going to practice a wrist grab on you, Georgia, I would say like touch or no touch. And if you said no touch, I would just put my hand near your hand so that you could sort of get the feeling of it. Um, and then you could practice the movement without actually having to have your hand grabbed until you felt safe and comfortable enough if you wanted to to move into that place. And then um, and then lastly, we also put an acknowledgement of survivors up there right at the beginning of class. And it's very important that we say you are here. You are alive whatever you did to get to today, you did your very best. 
Like we are not here to tell you what you could have, should have, would have done. We don't, we are here. We've been given this knowledge. These are tools that you can carry with you, you know, to help you live a little more confidently or safely going forward. But in that moment, like we cannot be with you. Oh, no one but you is there. And in that moment, only you know what is your best best path to survival. And it is not our place to tell you that. So like we don't we also don't train um, like it like too specific. Like if this happens to you, do this. If this happens to you, do this. We teach more like um, like we call them fight principles. So, you know, like um, move in, not away. Use it. Use your attacker's momentum. Like look at your available weapons and their vulnerable targets. So they're like bigger, higher concept principles com- um, matched with like gross motor skill strikes so that under adrenaline stress, you can perform them. You don't have to remember a spinning back kick with a Wonder Woman elbow strike, you know, that kind of thing. It's, um, you know, it's it's meant to be something that anybody can do and practice on their own, like with with no equipment. I love that so much. I I truly believe that fighting is something that is so intuitive, particularly striking, right? I think something like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is not that intuitive, but right. something like punching and kicking someone, I think all our bodies know how to do. And I see that from the women that I work with. You know, you just say, push someone away using your fist or push someone away using your foot. And the thing that they come up with not that dissimilar to if I say, okay, now you're going to hold your fist like this. You're going to rotate this amount. You're going to drive through your hips and come up on the ball of your foot. (laughs) And I think by giving people permission to say, you know, whatever you want to do, then they end up getting to a point that looks very similar to the way that we see people teaching through traditional martial arts classes. Mm -hmm. And I think the same can be said for instructors who mean so well um, and they feel like they're encouraging, but they are not leaving any space for stepping back. That mm-hmm. at the end of training for a few weeks, that someone who stepped in or got pushed in when they didn't want to be there, totally shut down, didn't take anything in anyway, compared to the person who did some, sat back, did some. Like the person who did less has probably learned more, right? Is that your experience as well? Absolutely. And, you know, I think one that one thing that strikes me the longer that I teach is it's amazing when you think that someone in your class is disengaged, um, you know, like or you can tell that it, that they're a little bit emotionally overwhelmed. So they you know, they even maybe sit back from the circle a little bit. But, um, you know, then six months down the road, you get a note from them, you know, or you see a social media post that they made and they talk about how much it impacted them. And you're like, I thought you were not listening to me, (laughs) you know. Um, So definitely, um, I think engagement, I have learned that engagement and participation can look very different for different people. And I think that's part of being trauma informed, you know, and just like understanding that, you know, some women, um, you know, they're going to have a huge breakthrough when they hit a pad for the first time. Um, And that looks like a breakthrough, right? Because it makes a great sound. And um, you know, other women are going to have a huge breakthrough when they just get the word no out of their mouth. And, you know, and that's that's huge for them, even though to to a lot of people, it doesn't seem like that big a deal. Totally. I think 
we're going to see a future where trauma-informed isn't even language anymore because that's just how we all interact as humans. Like, I don't know anyone who wouldn't feel more comfortable taking a class that was informed by trauma-informed principles. Like, if I'm there and I'm an well, it doesn't matter adult or child, but if I'm, I've showed up and I want to be there, then I don't give off my consent to you as the instructor who knows everything. Like nobody knows what I need and my body needs better than me. And I think everybody has days where, you know, things are going on in their life, stress is happening. Like you don't have to have experienced significant trauma or trauma or identify as having or being a survivor to benefit from that kind of a lens. And I I like that that happens to you too. You know, sometimes it is tricky from, from our perspective as an instructor. You're like, am I getting through to you? Is is class really, you know, good for you? Are you enjoying it? And one thing that I do with my all my students that they don't always love um, doing, and of course, again, there's there's no pressure to share, but at the end of class we go around and we say one thing that went well. And Mm -hmm. feedback is definitely that that's one of the hardest things to do in class because sometimes it can be difficult to look at ourselves as doing well and, you know, thinking positively. And it's just hard to say nice things about yourself sometimes, Mm -hmm. no matter who you are. But for me, like that, that really helps because at the end of class, I'm like, God, that was a terrible class. Everyone looked so Mm -hmm. blank. And then at the end of class, they're like, I loved it so much. I had this breakthrough, this happened. And you're like, oh, okay, we're we're actually doing cool things here. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. What would you say about people who say that self-defense is victim blaming? Yeah, that's so hard. Um, you know, I, I think that I think that I think that a lot of what we traditionally identify as self-defense training can be very victim blaming. Um, you know, just in the delivery, the way that it's presented and the delivery and the advice that's given. But I think like true self-defense, the way that I feel like empowerment self-defense is, is not victim blaming because it's it's just giving you tools that you can use. Like same as we liken it to swimming lessons, you know, like you don't teach somebody swimming lessons because you're going to blame them for drowning. Like it's just here, here are some things that you um, that you can use that will help you walk more confidently through life and keep you safer if you ever are in a moment of confrontation. Um, and I and I think anytime you're sharing knowledge, um, it, it's empowering. Like you know, I it, it's it's astounding to me, especially the amount of backlash coming from other feminists um, who who call self-defense victim blaming, Um, you know, and I, and I understand there are many people who've had terrible experiences in self-defense classes, but I think, um, I think in people who truly care about self-defense, not just use it as a tool to get people in the door in their karate studio, or, you know, like who truly, truly are invested in safer communities and self-defense. You know, I think that they're coming at it smarter now. um, And um, you know, and it's done in the spirit of empowerment. Totally. And I know it's not an easy question to ask. And I, from what I have read in the literature, you know, there, there really are two schools of thought. And I don't think that one is right or wrong. And probably the, 
for me, one of the most important things that you just said is like, it really depends on the school and the instructor. Mm -hmm. Like it's the same for kickboxing. You can have a really, really good instructor who nurtures you and like leaves you feeling good at the end of class, recognizes what your needs are in the class and helps you build towards those. And then you have an instructor who wants to create copy paste versions of their own past life as a fighter and projects that onto you and thinks that being in a dictatorship kind of relationship to you where what I say goes is the way to go about martial arts. And maybe probably that was the way that they were coached and so it kind of gets handed down. And I think whether or not you're teaching boxing or you're teaching self-defense or jujitsu or whatever the modality is, I think Mm -hmm. so long as you're following really good trauma-informed principles and from what you've said and from everyone that I've spoke to said, consent is the main thing in that. And some people say like invitational language, you know, some people say like we explicitly state that, you know, you need to consent for everything that you want to do. Um, some people have mantras written on the wall, you know, however you accomplish that can be slightly different, I think. And, you know, mm-hmm. people use different language and methods for that. But that that to me is the really, really key thing. And then martial arts are so varied, right? Like some people feel really much more self-confident. Like we can get into this now. So I think this is the number one thing, at least from my research and like so more and more after, especially the conference, but in the lead up to the conference, we're going to start releasing some of the data that I've found about why people train and what that impact is. And when I asked 220 people why they or what the impact of martial arts is on their life, so super broad, right? Mm-hmm. The most common answer was an increase in self-confidence. Mm-hmm. And I think as instructors, it's how do we facilitate that? And that might be by teaching someone a effective self-defense. So they mm-hmm. leave the end of going to empowerment self-defense and they say, yeah, you know, I, I did this move effectively and I feel like I worked out the mechanics and I can say hand on my heart. Like I, I feel like I could pull that off in mm-hmm. a self-defense situation and therefore I feel more confident. And sometimes it's more just like I stood in this position and I embodied power. Like mm-hmm. for my classes, it's more like that. It's not, I've, I've never hit anyone. I've never done these techniques, but I felt in my body where power sits and I changed my perception of myself. Now I feel more confident. And they're two, they look very different if you like ask a couple of different people, but I think they're arriving at the same sort of destination. So For you, what's your experience been with your changes in self-confidence from before starting and up until now? Um, (laughs) When I came to when I came to martial arts for the first time, I did it because I was a new mother and um, my husband traveled for work every week. Like he would come home briefly on the weekends, see us for a day and a half and then fly back out and he was gone every week. And, um, I had no confidence in myself to protect those children. Um, you know, and like I would lay awake at night and whether it was a house fire or a home invader, I would play worst case scenario after worst case scenario through my head. And I was like, I'm, I'm going to freeze these two perfect, innocent humans rely on me and I am going to fail them because I don't know what to do. And I'm going to freeze in, in the moment of like, in the moment of truth. Um, and you know, like the, 
foundation for that is that like I grew up in a really chaotic childhood. It was not not that stable. Um, and I had um I I had an eating disorder um for most of my life. I still struggle with it. Um and so like had just had decades of negative self-talk, um, seeing myself as weak, incapable, you know, fat, ugly, you name it, I said it to myself. And, you know, like, even though I, you know, was in a good marriage at the time, and like, my body had performed successfully through the birth of two children, and I was starting to be like, okay, body, maybe you're not so terrible after all. Um, I still like at baseline, the message was, I am weak, and I cannot and I will crack under pressure. Um, and so one night, like I was a, I was a freelance book editor, still am, um, I was freelance editor at the time. And I would work until three or four o'clock in the morning after I put my kids to bed, basically until I passed out so that I wouldn't lay awake and worry like it had gotten that bad. And one night in the middle of the night, I just remember sitting up in bed and being like, F this, I'm going to get some training. Like, this is ridiculous. I cannot live in fear. And so that's, then I went to that little um, women's self-defense class. And it, that, that was even serendipitous because it's, it's very hard before Thrive. It was very hard to find a self-defense class in our area. And it just so happened that there was like a tiny little Taekwondo dojo, like 20 minutes from my house and some other moms that were not really like close friends of mine, more just like friends of friends, acquaintances, they had like their church moms group had contracted for this small self-defense class. And as happens at the last minute, some people had to drop out. So my friend of a friend like put out a call through text message and was like, can anybody come to the self-defense class on Tuesday night? You know, it's three hours. It's only $10. Like, you know, can anybody come? And I thought it will never get easier than this. All I have to do is just get $10 and make the time to go there. And so I went and um, it was a, it was a small circle wrist release, you know, just the, the, like, and I don't know if you've ever done that before Georgia, but it's just like the small circle jujitsu principle where you expand the bones in your hand and just like make a small circular motion and you can break the grip. Um, and, you know, it was a big guy that had my hand. And in that moment, I was like, oh, my God, I can do this. You know, like it doesn't take strength. I don't have to be like a perfect supermodel body like I can do this. And it just lit this spark in me that I like I, I used to be a strong kid. Like I used to be, um, you know, like I, I, I used to be fiery and, you know, I don't know. And I lost that along the way. Um, and so it kind of like rekindled that little bit of like fighter spirit that I had had as a kid. Um, and and then, then that was it. Kind of the rest was history. And then I wanted, you know, then Lindsay and I were like, OK, so this joint lock stuff is cool and these throws are cool. But like we need we also need to learn how to box and we also need to learn how to grapple. And so we're like, we're going to take Muay Thai and we're going to take jujitsu and we're going to take weapons. And like, we just wanted the whole package, um, which is part of the reason why we joined the Federation. So, um, but it like, it was really, it was really that first moment. I love what you said, Georgia, about standing in a, like a body position of power and feeling 
the powerful stance and like, oh, this is what power feels like in my body. That was that was the most eloquent way to describe, I think, exactly what I felt in that moment. And then like, you know, six months or so down the line in Hapkido, I think it was like a yellow belt, like the first color belt that there was. And I and my partner that night was one of the guys in my class. And we were working on, again, some kind of a wrist release, but this one took like a little, required a little bit of force and I couldn't do it and I couldn't do it. And he was in in like the nicest way possible. He kept saying, you have to hurt me, Lauren, you have to hurt me. And I burst into tears because like, I think also our cultural conditioning as women is like, you do no harm always, you know? And like to think that I had to exert my force and my will on another human being. It was so foreign to me after so many years of just like, like just beating myself down in suppression. And like, I burst into tears. I ran into the bathroom, like, you know, sat there on the floor of the bathroom for a little while, cleaned myself up. And like, after the fact, the instructors told me they did not think I was coming back after that class. They thought that was it. Um, but you know, after, after it, I, I drove home, probably cried some more and I thought I am not giving up. Like I, I can't quit just because I'm outside of my comfort zone. Right. Um, and so then the next week I went back and actually the guy came up and apologized to me and I was like, no, that's exactly what I needed, you know? And, and I stuck with it and I'm so, so glad that I did. And so it was just very much that like believing that I could do it. And then also as I, like, I started also, I'm kind of going off on a tangent and I'm, I'm sorry, Georgia, but like, I'm loving it. I'm loving it. Keep going. I'm I'm remembering all these things. So as a, having anorexia, I was a compulsive exerciser when I was like in high school and college and I would get on that elliptical machine and I'd go for an hour and a half, you know, just like punishing, punishing. I would run, 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 punish myself. And then after I started martial arts, I got back in the gym and started doing some weight training and stuff, but my whole perspective had changed. Like it wasn't, it was not anymore about like, how small can I get? How much can I erase myself? I wanted to be better at Hapkido. Like I wanted to be strong for martial arts and like, except for Lindsay who came in like a couple months after I did my partner, it was all men in our class. So I just wanted to be able to feel like I could hang with the guys in my class. And so like it transformed the way I ate, it transformed the way I exercised. And then wouldn't, you know, now that I was focused on getting strong and healthy, like, you know, my, my body's never been healthier. Um, you know, like, even though I'm getting older and my joints are getting creakier and everything, like, um, you know, my weight is finally stable and I've never been healthier now in my forties. Um, and so I'm like, oh, if only I had found martial arts when I was like 10, you know, like I might be able to, I might have been able to save myself all of that. But um, it was really like a holistic transformation, like believing that I could do it, seeing myself as strong, and then finally figuring out that if I put good into my body, good came out. And it was like a virtuous cycle. And, you know, and then I just kept getting stronger and more confident. And I was like, I'm never leaving this. And now it's my job. <laughs> okay, I want to say something first that I'm so proud of you. Like that is such an amazing place to land at and it's it's not just inherent to martial arts. Like I think that is a really important distinction to make is that you don't just start martial arts and then all of a sudden become 
like I just not for everybody that they start martial arts and they just suddenly start making healthy choices um, and and change everything like that. Like it's not the magic bullet that I think sometimes like people might think that it is, but when you have really positive role models around you, I think it becomes much easier for that to be the way it plays out. So like, as an example, when I started martial arts, I was 12, but I, did I not have like diagnosed anorexia, but I certainly had like bad eating dysmorphia, body dysmorphia, eating disorders really for like seven years of when I was training. And it was compounded by the fact that weight cutting is a normal part of competitive Muay Thai. And I used that as an excuse. It wasn't the main reason, but it was a great excuse for me to justify to everyone why I was so skinny. Um, and similarly, like we've had Solon Piercy on here who she just won a national title in wrestling now having moved up a weight class after she was anorexic because she didn't like uh, people making comments about her body in the tight wrestling leotard that they have to wear. You know, so I think and, and she was just surrounded by men who made negative comments about her. So I think having people like you, so having a foundation like Thrive Empowerment that you've co-founded and that all the women through that are going to see you as a positive role model who's saying, you know, I want to, I want to be strong. I want to eat to feel my body for the next session. Like I, I want to be powerful. That's my main focus. They roll, you can, you can role model after that. Whereas you can very easily get into martial arts and I think exacerbate eating disorders or, you know, more negatively change your belief about your body because you start to lose weight too. And I think this is my really powerful, strong message that like I can't say enough to people is if someone starts martial arts or if they're competing and they lose weight, don't say to them, oh, you've lost weight because for me it was so hard when I lost that weight and people kept saying to me like, oh, my God, you've lost weight. Like you weren't fat before but you look really good now. Like, oh, my God, I can't believe how good you look. When I gained the weight back, no one said you look fat but in my head everybody did, right, because everybody had said how skinny you look. So I think you're an amazing role model now showing people you know, the way that it can be, how your relationship can be to martial arts. So well done. Thank you very much. And, you know, I, I have to also like give credit to my daughter because I think, you know, having a daughter around the same time and, you know, looking at this tiny innocent baby and being like, I don't want to hang my baggage on her. You know, and it like it happened to me like I'm I'm even I'm just going to be totally vulnerable and admit this terrible thing out loud. But it was my own like it was my own crap. She was like tiny, like six months old or something like that. And, you know, like she had her little baby rolls or whatever. And I made some little funny comment to my mom like, well, you know, she's my daughter. So there aren't any skinny jeans in her future. And it was like in that moment, I had an out of body experience where I heard myself say this about my own daughter. And I realized that it was like it was my own self-hatred projected on her. And I was like, oh, hell no, we are not doing this. I'm like, my mom had an eating disorder, undiagnosed eating disorder, too. That's where I picked it up. She never ate like my entire childhood. She drank black coffee and like ate a tiny bit of dinner at night. And that was it. And that was like it was her 
her generation, my generation, and it is definitely stopping here. And so like, I, I, I really wanted, I really wanted to model strength and confidence for her and not like, you know, Oh, you're so pretty and you're so thin and you know, blah, blah. Cause you're exactly right. And the, and the most heartbreaking part, Georgia, and I, the same thing happened to me is when the people that you love and admire the most are the ones that are like, Oh, you, Oh, you've lost so much weight. You look great. And only, you know, that you're starving yourself and it like cuts to your core, you know, when, when it's family members or when it's best friends and like, it's this weird, sick pride, but also shame because you know, you're being self-destructive and they don't know, but also you're getting the, you know, like you're getting what you wanted, right? You're thinner, except for you're never thin enough. So um, I can totally relate to that. And, you know, like I just I think that the tide is turning in popular culture. Like now you can see models of all sizes Mm -hmm. in catalogs and magazines. Whereas, you know, when I was growing up in the 90s, it was like the Victoria's Secret Angels with their rib bones popping out. And that was basically like all you had. And so I I definitely think the culture is changing. But, um, you know, like every time my nine-year-old daughter said something about calories, which she had to have picked up at school, because we don't talk like that in my house, I like die a little inside because you know that it's like women will always deal with that. So, but she's in martial arts, so I'm hoping it helps. (laughs) Yay. Is she doing jujitsu with you? Yeah, she, um, so the, uh, the school where I train has this, um, children's program, which is called junior jabbers. And it's like, uh, it's a, it's MMA. It's a combination mm-hmm. of, um, Thai boxing and jujitsu. So they're either doing striking or grappling on any given day. Um, and my, both my daughter and son are in that together, which has been great for them. Yeah. Wonderful. I love that. I see so many parallels to me starting karate, you know, with my mom and yeah, it's, I think the, even like the discipline side, the, the, interactions that you start to have with different people across different cultures, ages, sexes through martial arts or something you just don't often see in other sports too. You know, like if you put her into netball, I don't know if netball is common in America, but like in Australia, if you put her into netball, she's going to play with other nine-year-old girls, Mm -hmm. period. You know, you go into martial arts, you can train with your brother, you can train with other boys, kids of different ages, kids from different backgrounds, and then eventually you get old enough to start training with adults and you learn humility so early. So (laughs) I I, I certainly did because I was, I've talked about this a lot on the show, you know, I was like 12 with the world's biggest ego. I was like going to beat all the black belts as a white belt. Uh, (laughs) I got my black black belt and I wrote my essay and I was like, I think I'm starting to become more humble now. I feel like I know much less now than I thought I knew when I was 12 and I was first starting. Yep. Absolutely. It's an ego killer for sure. But, you know, but that's, it's also like, I, I love being a white belt in jujitsu because I love being allowed to try and fail at the beginning without any expectation. I'm like as excited as I am to get my blue belt one day, like I'm actually I am perfectly happy being a white belt right now because I like I I want to be like I don't know that 
you know, I'll, I'll, I'll try, but I probably can't do it right now. And I find that extremely freeing. Um, and I feel like every day I get reminded exactly how much I don't know, but that's fine. <laughs> I had the, that exact conversation last night with my partner. <laughs> he's like, you know, when you're going to grade to blue, um, cause he's going to get his, he's really overdue for his purple belt. He'll probably get it mm-hmm. soon. And I think the coach wants us to wait. And I'm like, I could wait a long time before I grade to my blue because I just I like being able to ask questions of everyone. I I like being given the space to be able to sort of try things out. You know, new new people don't look at the belt and then be like, okay, I can go as hard as I possibly can. You know, I think because I still want space to work out what does and doesn't work. So I totally resonate with uh, liking being in the beginner mindset, and I think part of that comes from like having gone through it all once, you know, once you've gone through and you've got your black belt once you realize like, it doesn't really matter what belt you've got Mm -hmm. around your waist. Like you don't need to earn respect from other people. You don't really need the external validation. Like you're just happy when you're like, I pulled off the move that we learned in class today, like in roles, Mm -hmm. like that's all you need. Once you start to yeah, unpack your ego a little bit. Not to say that like mine's perfect at all. And, you know, I definitely have days where I'm like, oh, I could be a blue belt, you know, like (laughs) totally, which I I couldn't. Um, And we all all have days like that, you know, I could be anyone, I'm the best. Um, But uh, I I think, uh, look, I'm certainly much humbler than I was when I was 12 at. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like I have a, I have a really hard coach, like he's, He's wonderful and fair, but he is tough. And that's one of the things that I love about him. And I feel like uh, when the day comes that I get my black belt in jujitsu, and I'll probably be like 55 years old, um, (laughs) like I will know then that I have really earned it. And to me, like that means more to me than anything, you know, like I, you can, you can buy a belt on the internet. That doesn't mean anything. What means something is, you know, showing up week after month after year and, you know, like the, you know, the injuries and the victories and, you know, like, and just knowing that you can hang, that you can do it, you know? And I I think that that will be, it'll be a good, good day. So we've talked a lot about the different elements of martial arts that have been therapeutic for you and therapeutic for others. But if we throw that question out there, right, which I always ask on this podcast, which is, why do you think so commonly people say that martial arts saved their life? Mm. I love that question so much. Um, I think, I think because martial arts is a really unique challenge, like such a small, small fraction of people in the world train anything. Um, And it's so like, It's man versus self. And I think, you know, like just having to be completely present in those moments, um, you know, does a lot of healing, even like passively when you don't even realize it. Like just just that embodiment, that like time to like really um, like set goals for yourself, learn your limits and then push past them. Um, you know, and the fact that like, there's a pride in knowing that you can do something that, or, you know, you have knowledge that such a small group of people on the planet have, I think that's really cool. You know, I mean, like, 
there's tons of basketball players or, you know, soccer players or baseball players, but like, there aren't a lot of black belt female martial artists. So, you know, it's, it's kind of like being a little bit part of the movement, you know, like of strong women. It's the closest we get to Wonder Woman in Themyscira, right? On the mat. So, um, but I, but I think, I think martial arts saves lives because of that um, time you get to spend with yourself and that embodiment and the, like, it really, it really tests you, but it also really rewards you when you've put in the work. And I, and, and I think having that positive feedback, especially when you come from a, a broken hearted place of any kind, um, you know, we kind of lose ourselves and it's a, it's, a remarkable way to rediscover who you are. That was so eloquently put. I <laughs> love that we're going to be able to soundbite that for the promo. And, you know, we've talked so much and I could really talk to you forever, but I want to be mindful of time. So I'm not sure if there were any topics or anything that you were thinking that we would talk about or any messages that you want to bring up for the kind of audience that would be listening to a podcast like this. Hmm, that's a great question. Um, I guess I'll turn it on you because this is something that I am really curious about. Like as mm-hmm. I'm um, following you and learning more about trauma-informed martial arts, like from a person who trains perspective, what are the ways that we can bring trauma-informed principles to the mat for our teammates when we're training? Like anybody out there or is there you know like is there a mindset or an example something um you know that that I I mean it's easy for me to to put on my trauma-informed hat when I'm on on my home mat at the center teaching self-defense but I don't think about it too much when I'm training martial arts so I don't know do you have any thoughts on that I mean, I could talk about it a lot and it's probably quite a big question. Um, So I'll give people just a couple of things that they can do to be a more trauma aware. If it's as a training partner, I think Mm -hmm. that a lot of that comes down to the kind of school that you're training in, you know, like um, how much space you have to work with your partner. And, you know, some coaches I think don't like coaching or um, maybe stalling. and, And I'll explain what I mean in a moment. So If you come from the kind of school where let's take Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu as an example, but it could be um, like striking when you're sparring in any kind of situation where you're going to spar or roll, I think is the time where you want to be most aware of how your training partner is feeling because it's the most emotionally heightened thing you can get into. It's where you, you know, someone's mounted you or um, someone's got your back or someone's punching you in the face. Those are high stress situations for everybody. So, Mm -hmm. If you come from a school where it's okay to have a 10-second chat at the beginning of the role or the match or the, you know, whatever, then I think just to say, how are you today? How how much, what would you like to, this intensity role to be? I think even what intensity do you want to go at is a great question because people straight away either go like hard, you know, they'll be like, hi, you know, I'm training for a comp. I want to go hard. Or they'll be like taken kind of a back, I think, because that's a bit of a weird question to hear from someone, particularly the first time. And if they kind of get, uh, oh, I don't know, um, you, you know, you might just go moderate. And some people will straight up be like, oh, I'm exhausted. Like today was tough for me. Like I really don't want to go that hard. 
Um, and I think if, if you do this as a practice, the more commonly you do it, the the more that your training partners are going to be used to knowing that you as a person will always check in with them. And so they'll kind of have something ready to go. But if you think about it from your training perspective, you know, if you ask somebody, how hard do you want to go? And they go like, oh, you know, today, today was a really tough day. And, and then you go light with them. Then you flow roll and you both get something out of it, right? They don't feel totally drained and you get to try things out without like pushing really hard. And if you contrast that to if you didn't ask the question and you just went hard without thinking or noticing how they're doing, then, you know, you're probably going to get lots of taps or you're going to do really well against them because they don't really want to be there. And then what does that teach you? Like, how does that help you anyway? Um, so I, I think it's both beneficial and very trauma aware to just check in with people before you go to roll. And um, Sean Desjardins, who runs Mindful Martial Arts in Canada, is very, very good at having that integrated as just totally normal as part of the way that his gym is run because it is a mindful, trauma-informed gym. So nice. if, if you have the space to be able to ask those kind of questions in class, then by all means, I think that's wonderful. But if you feel shy to do that, right, maybe like you're a white belt rolling with like a purple belt and you're asking them what intensity do you want to go? Like you might feel like, oh, I that's that's out of rank. Um, or you might be in a club where the coach is being like, come on, like onto the next round, no time for talking, like let's go, let's go. Notice if your partner's holding their breath. I think that that is a really easy thing that you can do that is a great skill to have as a friend and as a competitor, if your partner's holding their breath in competition, they're about to gas because they're not breathing, right? So it's a good thing for you to be used to noticing if they're not breathing. And then as a friend, if you notice that they're not breathing, you might just gently say like, hey, breathe. Um, because we talk a lot in, in trauma-informed spaces about how the breath can be triggering because that inhale does trigger our sympathetic nervous system. But typically, if someone's holding their breath, you just say breathe, they let it go. Um, if they then start to hyperventilate, well, like they shouldn't have been there in the first place. Um, you know, it's like they, they probably needed a break already before they got to that point, if, if that's what happens. Most of the time, people just hold their breath because they're just so concentrating on what they're doing. Like it's not even a trauma response. But I think that's a really good way to get a gauge for how the person that you're training with is feeling is if if they're holding their breath or not. And like I say, I think those are both practices that will lead to better training for you and better competition results when you think about applying it that way. That's fantastic. I'm going to start using that tomorrow in class. Thank you so much. Um, that was awesome. Uh, and uh, I think the only other thing that I wanted to say is uh, if you are out there and you're interested in learning about empowerment self-defense at all, um, I encourage you to um, seek out the National Women's Martial Arts Federation, uh, and that is um, nwmaf.org. And we're U.S.-based, but we're actually an international organization now. It's funny because we, we say that we're the National Women's Martial Arts Federation, but like none of those words are true anymore. Uh, we're international. Um, we accept um, like gender non-binary and gender non-conforming uh, members as well. Um, we're more than martial arts now. We're actually also self-defense and healing arts. Um, I guess federation is true. So um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a pretty great, um, it's a pretty great inclusive organization. And we've got 
amazing, you know, gold medal Olympians and, um, you know, PhDs and, you know, eight degree black belts and just an amazing, amazing group of members who are super generous with their knowledge. So um, if you, you know, if you're curious about empowerment, self-defense, um, please reach out to us at the Federation and we'd be happy to um, to give you some resources and point you in the right direction. Um, and then also, Georgia, you probably plug the, your conference every time, right? But I want to make sure you have space to do that too, because I want all of my friends who are listening to this to know about Georgia's um, trauma-informed martial arts conference. Totally, totally. And, you know, um, at this stage, like it's, it's totally full because I you know, the conference isn't for the purpose of sharing information and teaching in the way that it would be in a, in a traditional conference, I suppose. It's more like a group think tank. You know, what, mm-hmm. what, what is best practice in martial arts based on everybody's collective experience? And I would say we would have about 100 years experience in trauma and for martial arts combined, which is incredible when you think about how few people realize that trauma informed and martial arts go together as terminology um and so definitely watch this space for the work that will come out after the conference in particular because that's then when we're going to say okay we've, we've really got some stuff that we can share like at the moment it's just what I've trial and error worked out through my programs and everyone's kind of trial and error worked out some research so if we combine it all then I think we get much more statistical power in terms of what really does work and then I'll feel hand on my heart confident that I can teach you how to bring more trauma-informed practices into your martial arts practice if you are a practitioner and then how to bring martial arts into your practice if you're a psychologist or a therapist and, and that way inclined. So it's very, very exciting, I think, year for us coming up post the conference and I'm super excited to have you attending, Lauren, and to have a couple other people from sort of the self-defense world in because, like I say, I I think we're all trying to do the same thing when we're all trying to achieve the same thing whether it's through self-defense or whether it's through boxing or a different martial art where the self-defense isn't the the core component and I think we're working together rather than saying like this one's victim blaming this one's not this is better like I think right off the bat before this becomes an industry I want it to be a really inclusive industry so I'm super excited I'm super excited to have you absolutely thank you so much are you on social media or is there anywhere else that people can reach you if they're interested? Yes, absolutely. Um, we're at thriveselfdefense.com on the web. Um, and we are uh, on Facebook and Instagram at Thrive Empowerment. Perfect. We'll put all those notes as well as the um, detail for, details for Empowerment Self-Defense and the um, Federation and all the other the bits that go sort of with it uh, <laughs> in the show notes here so people can find you and find the details. And, yeah, I think particularly if they're in the States, go take some classes if things are opening up. I think now is a really critical time for us all to support martial arts practitioners too. Like it was tough when things were really, really locked down, but now that things are opened up, this is the time where – I think more gyms could start to go under from just not having people coming and and taking their classes. So if you feel inspired by any part of this conversation and this is something that you want to get into, I think now is a good time. Absolutely. Especially after everyone was stuck at home for a year, like do all those things that you've always wanted to do. 
including martial arts training. So. Yeah, but we'll jump on that cliche bandwagon if it gets more people <laughs> right. in. If it just helps one person like have a story like yours, I think it's totally worth it. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Georgia. Thank you so much, Lauren. Have you thought of something to be grateful for today? What was it? I am grateful for the amazing women that train with me at the Fight Back Project. I'm grateful for Nari and the beautiful song Shape Me heard at the beginning and end of every episode. And I'm grateful for you for listening to this show and helping martial arts keep saving lives. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. If you'd like to leave me a review to help more people find the show, that's a bonus. shapes me but me don't gotta tell you what my name is i don't gotta explain it walk in the room hear a boom erupting like i'm famous i'm here shedding shells i'm shameless i fear nothing no complacence Walk to many tight ropes with no hope, so I became this poster they hold over all the heads of trauma holders. You don't need to know my history, I move boulders. Atlas shrug, cause I lifted the weight above his shoulders. No pretense of defense, move first like chess soldiers. This goes deeper than empowerment, cause huh, I'm the one to power it. Physical meets mental challenge me to keep devouring. If I can't change the scenery, at least I change perspectives. No longer isolated, but elevated and selective. Darkest places become beautiful spaces. This is where rage meets patience. Meets power meets gracious. Meets, we're so glad you came in. The feeling is contagious. When you the walking impact of intended bad intentions. When you the manifesting of collecting all they tensions. You the soul and body hold it all and still remember. But I'm a work in progress, testament to all contenders. Forgot what it was like to have control over self. Forgot what it was like to be the one in charge. Forgot in my reflection, I could see all my wealth. Forgot that with my bare hands, I break all these bars, barriers, and obstacles. They can't cage me. They can't chronicle all my experiences and reduce them to appearances. When I was truly beaten, gave myself clearances to fall down, mess up, and get myself back up. I'm not looking for clovers because I don't believe in luck. Damn, you were badass. I heard them say it clearly. Why, thank you very much. I know now I'm not weary of what's next for me because I expect to see growth like I was planted, watered, fed, and bloomed to be the positivity and accountability. Knowing they won't step if I'm the agent of my agency. I think I found my voice again, huh? I think I found my voice again, huh? I'm not sorry, I'm not sorry, you're the end where I begin. Boundaries, I know them well. Take a breath and meditate. Who is she? I know her well. Now I get to open gates. One, two, one, two. I don't need your permission. And if you get uncomfortable, then use your intuition to know that I won't stay where respect is ever missing. And everything I do, that's me making decisions. It's truly underrated, the value of self-worth. Forgot that I was rich from the moment of my birth. A penny for my thoughts, no really. You can't afford it. You cannot buy my story, rewrite it, or record it. You cannot buy my story, rewrite it, or record it, huh?